It's good to see all of you. We're in the book of Daniel again, as Jim mentioned. And uh, yes, we are looking at a story that is extremely familiar to, uh, to so many of us. Daniel and the lion's den. I would love for you to put in the chat anything uh, fun, uh, humorous, uh, interesting in the chat about Daniel and the lion's den. Like anything that comes up for you that you uh, maybe were inspired by in the story or something you found uh, uh, interesting, funny, um, whatever comes up for you, uh, put it in there. This is a story that, <clears throat> boy, it brings back memories for, uh, for me. Also, as a kid, having been raised in the church and thinking about uh, uh, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel and the lion's den, and then there's like Daniel Tiger, you know, and it's like all these all these weird things that uh, all somehow trigger my mind right back to. So AJ used to watch Daniel Tiger. If you've never watched it, you're not missing much, but it was one of these uh, kids things on TV, you know, these shows. And, um, but there's so many, it's interesting how throughout all of, uh, you know, his, the, the recent history uh, in terms of, you know, TV and media and so forth, there's a lot of references to, this story. Um, there's, you know, uh, uh, sayings today that refer around being in the den, being, you know, uh, being in the lion's den. Oftentimes it means something like, what if you, if you hear like, oh, he's in the lion's den or she's in the lion's den, what comes to mind? It's like, you know, you're, you're in it because you said something, got yourself in trouble and you're thrown into the, you know, you're marginalized in some way, you're, you're being punished in some way. So, um, this is so common um, for folks. So Daniel 6 is where Daniel's, um, this Daniel in the Lion's Den story emerges from. I'm calling it Gifts of the Den. Um, it's not the greatest uh, title, but, de- uh, uh, but this idea of the gifts that come from the den is really the thrust of today's talk. I want to talk about what emerges out of the den, that we go into it all of us do, and then emerge from there with something that's uh, greater than what we went in there with. So Daniel Daniel Tiger, there we go, it's stuck in my head. Uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den, chapter six, let's let's read it uh, together. Um, Daniel six, and we're going to start at verse one. We're going to read the whole thing. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel uh, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. All right, so you're already with it, right? You're already with this story. It's like jealousy starts to come in there because they don't like that Daniel's being elevated. You can find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God, right? Um, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, perfect satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue 
an edict and enforce the degree the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you your majesty will be thrown into the lion's den now your majesty issued the decree and put it um now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown in the lion's den? King answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And the king said to King Daniel, or then they said to the, to, um, to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember, your majesty, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. With the king, with the rings of his nobles so that, the, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. When the king returned to the palace, he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. He could, and he could not sleep. The first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually able, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And even before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And when King Darius wrote uh, to all the nations and the people of every language, uh, in the earth, in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issued a decree that every part of my kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Okay, so what is this story all about? <laughs> um, I need to scroll over here and move uh, move the screen so I can see all of you. There we are. All right, so this story uh, is 
um, about a lot and a lot of things have been said about it and a lot of them have been really good, right? Again, this is the thing. There's no single interpretation of these stories. There are many, there are many thoughts. There are many, you, you know, the, the point of this is to really evoke participation as Jim indicated earlier, is that, you know, we're entering into the story. Um, and that's the point of these stories. Um, <clears throat> and um, it would have been uh, taken by uh, the listeners as this is a story to somehow encourage us, somehow to lift us up. Because uh, by the time this is being cobbled together, and these stories are cobbled together, um, they're not, this is not like one writer sat down and wrote the entire thing. These are cobbled together in various different ways. And this is evident by the scholarly work. You just read, you know, read it. You can find out that, you know, the way that uh, even the Hebrew starts off, it starts off with Hebrew in chapter one. Then from chapters two through seven, it changes to complete Aramaic. And then, then you're back to chapter eight and it goes back to Hebrew. And there are um, there is a span of quite a bit of time that goes by in all of this. And there are also the, the order in which the kings show up is not always consistent with, uh, with other um, historical evidence. So what this, is it, what this is, is it's a story that is put together much like the Gospels, which is why if you read one of the Gospels and you read another one, the order of events is different. And there's a reason for that, because they weren't interested in giving you a historical like chronology of how things happen. They're interested in preaching a sermon to you. And the sermon was really the, the goal. It's like, here's what I'm trying to communicate to you. And I'm putting these stories up against each other to make that point, to make that story. So Daniel is, um, this story is, is, is uh, uh, as we said before, and I'll, I'll show you again um, in a moment, I'll share the screen. And you'll be able to see this sort of chiastic pattern of this and what the central message is, which is, as we talked about last week, is chapters four and five. Um, but this is what uh, he is saying is, um, look, there's a, you know, there's, there's this, this, this story here is extremely important for you as a people, because you will oftentimes be in a situation where you'll be tempted once again to go into the patterns that all nations, all people go through, right? So this is what we talked about last week, patterns and prophets. And this was consistent. There's a reason why Daniel is in the setting of, um, in the setting in which it, it is, it's a telescoping in on a story that was the story of Israel. As you go through the book of uh, Kings, for example, when you go through the book of Kings, you see a list of, and it's a tough book. Have you ever read the book of Kings, anyone? It is not an easy thing to read. It is really, really difficult and, uh, and, and quite boring at times. And then at times it gets interesting because there's a, this, again, it telescopes in on a story and starts to uh, give you something, but then it, it just goes back to, and this King rose up and he was more wicked than the previous King. And, and, uh, and then, you know, then this next King rose up and he reformed things. And then the next King came up and he was even worse than the previous Kings before then. And it just gets worse and worse and worse all the way to the end of the book of Kings. And, uh, and then what ends up happening is at the end of the book of Kings, they, um, Israel, the Southern kingdom, and the Northern kingdom end up in exile. So the, the Northern kingdom first in 722 BCE, and then the Southern kingdom in 586 BCE, both end up completely in exile. And the prophets had said this was going to happen because the pattern repeats itself over and over again. 
once you are freed from oppression, you forget grace. You forget God's grace. And we talked about this some weeks ago. You forget the grace that God has given to you. You forget that everything is a gift. And you begin to think you're entitled. You worked harder. You deserve this more than other people do. And then you begin to mistreat those who are under you, those who do not have the same privileges or power that you do. And you begin to treat them in a different way. You don't, you don't look at it as all boats rise. You look at it as my boat rises. And then you begin to oppress these people. And you don't even see that you're oppressing them. That's the reason why the prophets have to come and say, hey, you're oppressing people. Like we're not oppressing anybody. They have the same options as everybody else does, or they have the same liberties or, hey, look, Rome's excuse was, hey, we made you better. We took you barbarians and we actually gave you roads and we gave you a language and we gave you all sorts of things. Why are you complaining? Well, we're complaining because you're keeping us at subsistence level. I mean, we're, it's hand to mouth. Like, yeah, but at least you get some measure of security. You didn't have it before. You could have been raided by others. And it's all this argumentation that takes place. But God hears the voice of the oppressed, not the excuses of the oppressor. That's consistent in scripture. That's consistent. This is what is remarkable is that we don't see what's consistent, but we see the sort of exceptions and we want to live by the exceptions. And this is what we do with scripture. We make it like, well, you know, people need to work harder and whatever. Yeah, that's absolutely true. No, no question about that. They need to be responsible. But what we miss is the consistency over and over again that God hears the oppressed, not the excuses of the oppressor. Never, never. And we can trace this from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. And so to be on the side of love is to be on the side of listening and hearing what are the voices that are being said. So the prophets are saying, listen, you people, you kings, you leaders, you're oppressing your people. You are going to end up in oppression. This is the pattern. God gives you, as we talked about in Deuteronomy uh, a few weeks ago, when we talked about Deuteronomy and we talked about how in that book, in the early chapters, God through Moses says, look, I'm going to free you from oppression, but I know what you're likely to do. So here's what I'm telling you. Remember the Lord, your God, who freed you from oppression. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget that. Remember grace. Remember gift. Remember that this is yours as a gift, that you're not entitled to this. You don't deserve it. You're not better than anybody else. You're not better. There's nothing intrinsic about you that makes you special, more so than anybody else. What it is, is that all of you are to see life as gift and as everything that God has given to you as gifts so that you then live from a place of love and generosity. That snaps this whole oppressive kind of system, this whole pattern that all of us fall into and fall into in our own individual lives. Uh, and so what what the, what the prophets are doing is recognize this pattern. So this is chapters four and five, recognize this pattern. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind because he is become an oppressor and God allows that to happen or causes that to happen. However, we want to see it. Then Nebuchadnezzar returns to his mind and says, yes, that's true. I'm sorry. He changes. He becomes greater than ever before his son or grandson, more literally, the chapter five, he doesn't, and he gets wiped out and killed. And so the story that's interesting is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. What's not interesting is the story of Belshazzar, his grandson. 
because that's the story that repeats itself over and over and over and over and over again, that it gets tedious and boring, which is part of the thing. I think the point of Kings is to say, see how uninteresting, how boring, how uncreative it is to live a life stuck in the pattern of hoarding, of trying to keep, of trying to take care of, of trying to, uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to live in a way that meets your own sort of, you know, needs, but not in, a, not in a healthy way. You're not meeting your true needs. You're sort of meeting the superficial needs. And you're trying to go about doing this and you're becoming an oppressor to other people. This is normal. This has been done a million times. There's nothing unique or interesting about that. But pay attention to Nebuchadnezzar because he snaps out of it. And because he breaks the pattern, because he hears the prophets, he hears the voices, the prophetic voices that are always coming to us. Remember, we talked about that. He hears them. He snaps out of it. Okay. So this is the setup. This is the setup now to then going into what is this story about Daniel and the lion's den and the other bookend, which is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. So, um, Jim, if you can give me sharing rights, I'm going to share the screen um, and show you this once again, this sort of chiastic pattern again. Okay, thanks. Um, all right, so let's look at the, uh, the. let's see if I can get this, the chiastic pattern here. Um, you see here in chapter one, uh, or chapter two, excuse me, this is the start to the Aramaic section. A dream of four kingdoms is replaced by a fifth, A. And then A, chapter seven, a vision of four world kingdoms replaced by a fifth. So again, you see the parallel here. Chapter three is a parallel to chapter six. Daniel in the lions or the fiery furnace, right? Uh, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Menego. And then down here, Daniel in the lion's den. So there's your bookends right here. Two, chapter four, which is about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, losing his mind, ending up returning, and Belshazzar and the writing on the wall, who does not um, change. All right, so these are the bookends. Whatever one is going to say, the other one is going to say similarly, okay? So the lion's den, this is a uh, common theme throughout, um, throughout scripture. Um, all right, so let's take a look at the uh, the message here. So there are several possible meanings to the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Really, there's probably only one significant one that has consistently been retold over and over again, because it's one that was held by, uh, by uh, many ancient people. But I'm also going to talk to you about another one that was also held, but not as popular. Okay. The first one that's popular, and you'll probably recognize this one, is that uh, the nation of Israel will gain favor with their oppressor. So in, the, in this case, it was um, now, well, Babylon, but now under um, the Persians, uh, they'll gain favor by their oppressor by following God's laws, and um, they will suffer at times, but will be vindicated uh, in the eyes of their oppressor. So a shorter way of saying this or a simpler way of saying it is, if you do the right thing, 
even when you get thrown into the den, even when you get in trouble by your oppressor, God will rescue you if you've done right. And then it will be a sign to those around you that you were more noble, more righteous than the others. Does that sound vaguely familiar for you uh, if you grew up in the church where Daniel's story was being the Daniel in lion's den was told this way, right? That is true in part, but here's why it's not true entirely. Because the Jews fully well knew that that wasn't true on an individual level. Many of them died doing the right thing, right? That's the reason why you have the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where in the Hebrew writer says, hey, look, there were many who were saved, many who were saved, but there are many who died doing the right thing. That's kind of, the, that's kind of a lot of what the, the, the chapter 11 of Hebrews is saying is like, look, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee you will be saved. And even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't go in there like, you know, God's going to save us, you know, you evil king. They, they say he can. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do this. Right? So it's, a, it's, it's that approach that they take. So this can't be taken in a wooden sense of like absolute, I will be saved if I do the right thing. What it is intended to say is certainly if you do the better thing, if you break those patterns and you don't go into the same patterns that everybody else does, you will also end up going through your own kind of den. And in the den, you will suffer and you will struggle. But when you emerge, you will emerge with something that will be a gift for all people. Where do I get that? Come on, theologians in our community. When you come through, you will have a gift for all people, not just for the Jews. Not just for the Jews. This isn't about a nation versus another nation. This isn't about Judaism versus any other thing. This isn't about Christianity versus anything else. If you get that from the story, you're missing the point that the author's trying to drive at. And certainly you'll miss the point that then the authors, the gospel writers are getting at. So I'll give you a hint. It's in the gospels. You go through the den, you come out with a gift. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Egypt and Christ. Yeah. Jesus going into the desert, then Jesus dying, going into the grave and resurrecting and having a gift for all. This is a common theme. An extremely common theme in scripture. You go into your own period of being exiled. This is true of the of the um, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. They all go through a period of exile where they themselves go through a period of time where they are pushed out, where they leave, they have to go. And in that period of time, there's some work that God does inside them. It's sometimes called, theologians have called this the liminal space, liminal meaning threshold. It's the period of in-between periods where you were once felt like you were safe and you were in this place where it was very comfortable. You knew your world, it, you were oriented to it, and then suddenly you're thrust out and now you're experiencing disorientation. For kids, it's like when you go from, you know, middle school to high school, or you go, you go to, you know, you go from high school and you graduate and suddenly you're in, in, in college. There's a new orientation or you leave college and finally you're done with all of education and now you start into the work world. There's a new orientation. This happens over and over again. 
And you're going to experience this in your life. And you have experienced this in your life. Many of you have experienced, all of you have experienced the desert period. Right? The point of that is as you go in, you go in and you yourself are transformed by that experience. And when you come out, you come out a different person. You come out humble. You come out genuinely humble. Not a humbleness of like, oh, low me, little me, a, a humbleness of a humbleness and a boldness. It's a humbleness of I know that um, I can I can suffer and I and I've suffered. And now I understand suffering in a new way. And now I experience solidarity with those who suffer. But at the same time, I also now have something to give and to contribute to the world around me. It's a powerful moment when you emerge and you emerge more fully from that. This is the thing is you come out with a gift. When Christ enters and Jesus enters into the desert, Jesus is tested. He leaves the comforts of the world that he knew. He goes into the desert. Israel goes into the desert. And when Jesus emerges from the desert, he comes and, the, and Luke says he was full of the spirit when he comes out of there. When Jesus himself dies and goes into the grave, and that Saturday period is the liminal space where nothing takes place. There's Good Friday, there's Saturday, and then there's Resurrection Sunday. And in the resurrection, he arises with a gift to give to all people. And here's one of the things I've had to, I have had to look at my own life is in the places where I'm emerging or, or in the desert or, or, or you know, in the period of, of, of the desert and I'm feeling it and I'm understanding what it's starting to understand what the point of this is. The fullness of this is when I come out and I have a gift to give and that gift is from a place of love and all of you have a gift to give. All of you have gifts that God has given to you. And that gift gets to emerge through the period of the desert more cleanly than it, and more powerfully than it ever has before. That's the point of the desert. This is the point of, you know, when chaos comes into your life, it's not to be afraid of the chaos. It's to welcome it while it's uncomfortable so that it then empowers you so that your gift to the world is even greater than it ever has been before. I think of, um, when I um, was in this, this church that uh, years ago that I was pastoring in full time, and then I was asked to leave and how painful that experience was. And I left that and it was, it was quite a few years before I would start to understand a bit more, more of what was the point of this? What, the, what was the meaning? What's, the, uh, what's my new understanding? And then it would be more years before I would get a chance to then come back. And now I get this opportunity where that same church that I left, that I'd been asked to leave, where I was no longer in relationship with folks there, I have been able to come back and serve in many ways recently in the recent past uh, year. I've been able to serve them in some new ways. And it has been quite an incredible joy for me that I'm able to give this gift. But for a while, it was this attitude of it's, 
you know, us against them sort of thing. It was like, they're wrong, they're bad, you know, and, and, uh, you know, yay to the vineyard, the vineyard's better. You know, it was all this stuff that I was doing in the early years. And when you realize the fullness of what the desert period is supposed to be is that you understand that the gift that God has given to you is for all people. There's no longer any of the sense of it's me against them. The fight is, is complete. Think about Jacob. When Jacob, the, you ever hear the story of Jacob wrestles with the angel? This is another one that has made it into popular, not as popular, but there's still a lot of people who will reference, you know, wrestling with God kind of thing. Jacob wrestles with God, you know, and in that time that he wrestles with God, there's a, a change that takes place within him. Right? And when he comes through that after the wrestling, Jacob has is given a new name, right? And this is the this is the thing. At first, J- Jacob is against the world. Jacob comes out grasping his brother's foot, Esau, the twins, and so he's given the name supplanter, Jacob, because he's that kind of character, and he would prove that it was him against the world. And uh, and then it turns out that he has a him against God kind of thing. Like I'm going to wrestle, and I want you to bless me, and I don't want I don't want you to change me. And he literally fights with God. And then something shifts because in the wrestling, God gives him a new name and transforms him fully. He goes through the desert. He goes through his own period of being exiled and he wrestles with the divine. And through that, he comes out different. And now he has changed and his gift is for greater people. It's for more. It's transformed him. And now it's liberally and generously given to the world around him. But it doesn't mean that all people will receive it. And that's the part that can be disappointing is your gift is for the world, but not all will receive. And so I'd like you to think about in your own heart right now, where are you dispositionally towards people, dispositionally towards God? Is it a me against God moment? That's okay if it is really, because Jacob had to have that. And it's not that Jacob was like, I hate God and I want to, no, he's actually kind of like wrestling because he's, he's desperate. And that's what we do when we're desperate. This is negotiation. It's a, it's a bit antagonistic, but at the same time, it's a, I, it's towards God. Like I, I, I need you. Right. It, 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 where are you dispositionally with people? Is it still like a, I, I just don't like, you know, I'm just, these people over there, you know, this group over here. Yeah, it's like, we can do this so easily. These people, they, they, you know, and it's this like alienation. It's like this, these people are bad. These people are wrong. These people. And think about that for a moment. Be gracious to yourself. Like if you're there, that's okay. That's where you are. Right. But understand where you are in the flow of where you're going, that this isn't a landing place for you. This is a period where you have to go through this. And this is part of the desert experience. This is part of the den. This is part of the, of what we will have to go through periodically in our lives so that it transforms us to something else. Now, in the case of Daniel, you might be saying to yourself, well, Daniel didn't look like he was transformed when he went into the, into the den. Um, No, it doesn't look like that at all. 
Daniel looks like he goes in and it's like he goes in and he was right to begin with. And then he's even more right when he comes out. That 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 definitely reads that way. Right. But the experience of Israel is that when she goes into exile, right, she is transformed in the exile. Right? That is what happens. And this is what Daniel is about. It's about a representation of a people. Daniel's representing Israel. And that's the way the ancient mindset was. Jesus represented Israel too. Um, and Israel, you know, it was the nations within me kind of thinking. I'm, I'm in the nation, the nation's within me. And so my life will represent the life of the nation. And very much that's the way they tell these, these stories. And so Israel is embodied in the person of Daniel. And Daniel goes through into the den and comes out to the other side, right? And has a gift that is for the Medes and the Persians. It's to bless them. See, the fullness of what happens as we go through, it's to bless all people, to bless all nations, to love all people. I, I always check in my own soul, my own heart. How am I doing with these, this person in my life? Who I have a hard time forgiving? Who I have a hard time, how am I doing? How am I doing with uh, this group of people? How am I doing with this church? Are these kinds of churches? I have, I have issues with, with some churches. I do. It's still present within me. I feel it at times. It's like, oh, there it is again. There it is again. I'm still frustrated. I'm still angry. Right? Or those Republicans or those Democrats or those, you know, I still have those things. And you probably do too. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's there at times. And so it's okay. We, we just acknowledge it. Like it's still there. But where I'm heading is I'm heading ever more towards, I want the gift that God has given to me to be a gift for all people. When Jesus was resurrected, it wasn't just to triumph over the, the Romans. So that was what the Jews were hoping for. He triumphs over Rome, knocks them off, and then elevates us as the, as the righteous people, vindicates us. But instead, Jesus goes into the grave and comes out. And who is the blessing for? Oh, my gosh. For anyone who believes, anyone who has eyes to see, the Roman centurion who watches him die, stands there and says, oh, man, surely he was the son of God. Like, there is something that clicks in him. He says, this guy is different. He exited the patterns that have always replayed and played themselves over and over again. If he was one of these other messiahs, he would have attempted a revolt like every other messiah had attempted. But this man didn't try the revolt. Instead, he broke a pattern. And therefore, his death now has become my life. His gift is good. His gift is pure. And I can see it because he snapped out of the pattern that all of us tend to fall into. Vine 39, we got to snap out of the patterns that we fall into over and over again for the sake of the world so that others can see and say, this is the path. This is the way. And so many of you have, I love your stories. Boy, I've heard so many stories in the past year from you folks that have inspired me. And this is where we're going is to continue to move out of those patterns 
to live like we have never lived, to die like we have never died. This is the when we enter into the den, it's how we enter the den and how we live inside the den and how we emerge out of the den that makes the difference. If we are like every other, if we're like Belshazzar, if we're like uh, the, the, the others who, you know, even Nebuchadnezzar in his earlier life, if we are like these people, we will fight. If we are like any other Messiah, we will do the things that all humans have always done. That the book of Kings says this happens over and over again, over and over again, over and over again for 20 something chapters, over and over and over and over and over again. And they never exit the pattern except for these one or two people. And when we see them, we say, oh my God, there's the light. There's the light. That's the road. That's the narrow road that Jesus was speaking about. There's a wide path that leads to destruction, but that's, that's the narrow space. Because it's the reason why it's narrow and difficult is because very few people have walked on it. Right? It's so funny because I've preached that sermon in the years past as a good evangelical, and I've said, all these people going to hell, you know, chose the wide path and the right path is the Christian path. Now I look at it and I say, oh my goodness, it's the same. It's funny. It's the same path in the evangelical world that it is. There's all these patterns that are repeating themselves over and over again in the church world, just as much as outside the church world. This is the reason why the gift is for all people. This is the reason why Jesus, when he comes back and gives the gift of salvation, it is for those who see, and it's a Roman centurion who sees. It's, a, it's the women who come, who are the first of the well, and who are, oh, they see it, and they have faith, and they believe. It is Greeks who begin to believe, but Gentiles, non-Jews, other barbarians of all kinds, all these people who are coming and seeing it and saying, this is true growth. This is true transformation. This is breaking through from a, these, these old patterns to something new that is truly life-giving. And so, my friends, where are you in the story? How are you doing in the den? What gift is emerging inside you? What gift was always there that's now being purified and it's even more on fire than it, it was before? Yeah, I love that, Jim. Yeah, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Yeah. So good. So good, my friends. This is the, this is the path we're invited to walk. And so let's be bold. Let's be bold and say, okay, this is, I'm going to learn to break through these patterns. And I want my gift to be a gift for all people.